When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last nine years, we've been meeting here every single week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, you're fresh back into the homeland of Missoula, Montana from Las Vegas, where you attended UFC 264 over the weekend, your first live fight since the start of the pandemic. We've decided to welcome you back home here to the one true time zone with smoke, forest fire smoke in the air that is currently rated unhealthy for sensitive groups, according to the Department of Environmental Quality website that I'm looking at at this moment. Tell us a little bit about Vegas, man. Start, I guess, on fight night. This was the first time you got the opportunity to sit there live and watch a fight for a long time. Probably couldn't have chosen a better event to get back to it with, with Conor McGregor against Dustin Poirier in their third fight. What was the atmosphere like inside T-Mobile Arena? Did it make you nervous? What was it just like to be there cage side? Well, first of all, full disclosure going into this week's episode, I'm tired. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit tuckered, a little bit worn out after my big week in Las Vegas. Uh, I, I got out of the routine. It's been a long time since I did the routine of like fight night, press conference, writing something immediately after the press conference, get a couple hours sleep, and then head to the airport at like 5 a.m. and fly home and you know then just have to immediately resume your life as like a parent and stuff. Um, been a while since I did that, and I'm a little out of practice at it. But I'm really glad I went to this event because there was a moment pretty early on in the card. Maybe it was even like the first fight, like the curtain jerker fight on UFC 264, where I'm sitting there, I'm in the arena at T-Mobile Arena, and you hear that that crowd pop for the first person through the curtain. And, you know, it's a Vegas crowd at like 3.30 in the afternoon on Saturday. Only the hardest of the hardcores who hold tickets are at the venue at that time. Everybody else is still drinking, playing table games, run around, acting the fool in Las Vegas. You know, they're not showing up. The, the big stars aren't showing up until like the last two or three fights of the evening. The people who are actually there who are like waiting in line in the sweltering, ungodly 115 degree heat just to get like waiting for the doors to open so they can get in there and catch the first fight of the evening. 
those people are about that life. Yeah. And when you hear that crowd response to the first couple people through the curtain for the first fight of the night, I kind of went, oh, yeah, I remember this feeling. Like this feeling of excitement that you can't help but sort of be infected by. Like other people's enthusiasm, that feeling of a live fight, that feeling of the way too loud music in the venue, hearing somebody's walkout music, seeing them come down the aisle, hearing the crowd respond in these really crazy moments as the fight gets going, all that sort of energy. I forgot the way that can be a thing that, like, you feel and sort of lifts you up and and pulls you into everything that's going on. And I got so used to it, I think, like, especially there have been times over the last, you know, year, year and a half where I felt a little burned out on just, you know, covering MMA or the same old grind. And you're especially when it's one event after another every weekend, like from the apex and it's just this quiet arena where people are going to show up, people are going to fight. Sometimes you, you barely know who the hell they are and you go, okay, like, it's just like, we're just doing this one weekend after another, the same old shit. And then you go there and you get thrown back into this environment and you go, oh yeah, I remember how it used to be exciting. I remember what was really fun about it. And here it is again. Like there was a moment there where I felt like, man, I, I feel emotionally affected by just being reminded of that feeling, which I had totally forgotten. And it was really great to be able to be there in the building. One thing though, it did notice, and this is not just about being at the fight, but about being in Las Vegas for the week, for the fight week, doing the usual fight week stuff. You know, as you said, my first, this is my first UFC event since, I think since I went to the one in Melbourne in October of 2019, where Bobby Knuckles lost his title to Israel Adesanya. Um, but it's kind of my first, this was my first time on a plane since February of 2020 when I went to Portland to cover Shel Sonnen's submission thing. And kind of my first time, like, going somewhere. I was, like, leaving, getting on a plane, leaving the state since the pandemic started. Something happened to my ability to be out in public, like among big groups of people. And I was not totally prepared for that. You know, I, I've mentioned before, I was never the kind of person who really gravitates toward big crowds and was really great with that sort of environment to begin with. But like my sort of endurance, my tolerance for it, for other people, for especially in large public groups, went way down <laughs> over the last year and a half. And I did not realize it until I was in Las Vegas and I felt like, fatigued by just leaving the hotel, just like going down to the casino floor, trying to find something to eat and being overwhelmed at like long lines everywhere. And there's people everywhere you turn and just being like, uh, I got to get back in the room. Uh, and it's just like, what the hell has happened to me, man? And is it going to come back? Like, is this, is this just how I am now? Or is this just, I have to like build up my endurance for it again. I don't know, but it was an interesting and unexpected part of the trip for me. Your tolerance for relating to others has never been particularly high. No. So it's frightening to know that it has even been undermined even further mm -hmm. by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel like even at home watching this thing on pay-per-view and following along uh, on social media, this event felt alive to me in a way that even like the last couple important pay-per-views have not. This was, this was a big one, and I don't think you can deny it. And I guess we have to credit 
Conor McGregor for being there for that. I, we're going to talk more about that fight, obviously, coming up later in the show. And I don't think all of the things we're going to have to say about the notorious Conor McGregor are going to be positive. But, like, I think you got to give him credit for still being able to bring that big fight atmosphere. Got to give Dustin Poirier the same amount of credit, probably this being the trilogy. They came in one and one. Uh, yeah, this just felt like a big one, man. It's a reminder that when the UFC wants to do it, or when it's fortunate enough to put together a card like this, it can still feel vital and it can still feel uh, important in a way that it doesn't feel important when you're just rattling off these fight nights one yeah. after another. So that was that was a refreshing change to my mind. Yeah. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention before we get deep into this, listeners of the live chat will note that recently we discussed a plan to get in on this action where people want to sponsor college athletes now that the Supreme Court says that is our right as Americans. We saw American Top Team, Dan Lambert, they're going to do it for the University of Miami uh, athletes there. Um, we said, hey, maybe the CME doesn't have the kind of scratch where we could just you know, put a whole football team on the payroll. But we can help out a Grizz athlete. I'm going to say... I've made headway in this department, Chad, and I think I think we might be close to a deal. I also want to say, let's keep an open mind as to what you know what sport we we want to get involved with. You know, let's. I'll tell them the safer now. Let's just let's go into it with an open mind. That's that's excellent news. Uh, of course, most people who are listening to the proper right now have no idea what you're talking about. And that's because they need to go over and join the team over at the Patreon page. Go mm -hmm. to patreon.com slash co-main event. You can sign up over there. Get a full week of MMA content from the co-main event podcast. We got the Wednesday live chat, the Friday power hour, and of course for the top level patrons, our Thursday movie club. Now when we reconnoiter this week both for the live chat and for the power hour, we're going to be continuing on with our ongoing adventure of $20 we never want to see again, where you and I both take 20 both take 20 bucks and put those down on an assortment of bets for the upcoming UFC event. For UFC 264 this week, there's going to be some intrigue because yeah. there's a bit of a cliffhanger regarding uh, my parlay that I put down for this event. I, I had originally included a three-fight parlay uh, the first leg of which was Alan Amandovsky against Hu Yao Zong. Now, of course, that fight got canceled due to COVID-19 protocols. I went in and I hit my other two fights because I had Driscus Duplesis, a.k.a. DDP, over, DDP. Kevin, over Kevin Giles. Uh, and I had Zagles Zumugulov over Jerome Rivera. I'm probably nailing these names uh, in the curtain jerker. So I hit my other two legs. And there's word on the street that Vegas will still let you cash your uh, your ticket if one of the fights gets canceled. Unfortunately, it was too late at night and you were too tie-tie to go uh, check that out <laughs> well. to find out for me if my parlay hit. So I assume you're back in Missoula with the ticket in your in your possession. I've got and it. And we will get we will either get online or I will call Johnny Vegas on the phone personally and we will find <laughs> out whether or not this parlay is going to cash and we will let the people know either on Wednesday or Friday. So if you want to find out the results of that, you got to get over to patreon.com/comainevent and sign up for the Patreon. One thing I will say that we did not or maybe I did not fully take into account. Uh normally we put our $20 we never want to see again bets down on the little Montana state gambling machines that are found in various local taverns here. And it's a pretty simple process, you know, go in there and, and get your money out when you win. This time, 
we use the Vegas, the, the MGM sports book, but you know, we got better odds because the MGM sports book has to compete with all the other Vegas sports books. So they give you better odds to entice you in here. The, there's only one sort of Montana state gambling program and it's the same machine in every bar. They give you pretty shitty odds. But the trade-off, especially when you're relying on a working MMA journalist to cash your bets before he has to catch a, a super early flight out of Las Vegas right after the fights, is that he has to try to show up in that sports book at like 1 a.m. with his goddamn tickets. And you know how it is when you come up out of a UFC event that you've been working since you've been there since, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon. And when yeah. you emerge into Vegas, it is like showing up to an out-of-control college party that you were nine hours late for. Yeah. And everybody else has puked and cried and lost their shoes already. And you're showing up trying to do some business like, oh, I'd like to cash these tickets and also maybe get something to eat. And people are like, fuck you. And it's, it's a hell of an environment to try to get anything done in. So I did the best I could. Let's say that. I've covered a UFC event in Vegas on the Saturday night that essentially was Halloween. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming out of that thing. It's it's you're right. It's like midnight, one o'clock in the morning when you get done with all the shit you got to do. I walk out of the thing, uh, wasted Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy <laughs> were just spilling out of an Uber on Molly and all kinds of shit. And I was just like, whoa, dude, I got I had your I felt like Ben Folks. I was like, I got to get back to the room because yeah. I feel like I am the one on hallucinogens right now. Mm-hmm. That's how it happens. We got music this week from our guys Foreign Cash, an LA-based production duo. If you like what you hear from them on the show, you can check out more over at their stu- over at uh, foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com/foreigncash and again, the word cash is C A C H E, cash. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, so Conor McGregor broke his leg. And then he got carted out on a stretcher, looking like Suge Knight that one time he got shot, got flipped off by Dustin Poirier's husband, and now Dana White says they'll probably do a fourth fight, but even he is taking a wait-and-see approach. Dudes, is this the end? And in round number two, you may not like it, but Tai Tuivasa is what peak performance looks like. And in round number three, ESPN definitely wanted to give UFC 264 that big event feel. Unfortunately, they did it by junking up the broadcast with a bunch of people who don't know anything about MMA. Man, why they do that? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from D's Knots, okay. spelled K-N-O-T-S. D's Knots. So mm-hmm. a Boy Scout, I assume. Uh, or a uh, distant cousin of Don Knots. It's possible. It's possible. D's Knots. Uh, were we more impressed by Sean O'Malley putting up historic accuracy numbers with his strikes in that cakewalk of a fight or more impressed by green haired dude? Walking through those punches for almost three whole rounds. Also, Herb Dean stoppage. Terrible or nah? So, of course, you had late replacement fighter Chris Motinho coming into this thing to fight Sean O'Malley in the pay-per-view curtain jerker. The first fight on the UFC 264 uh, pay-per-view. Sean O'Malley wins by very late TKO in the third round. Uh, Obviously, 
Sean O'Malley the heavy, heavy favorite in this thing and performed like it kind of unloading at will. However, Ben, when they had to find a late replacement for Sean O'Malley to fight, apparently they reanimated a corpse or something because this Chris Mohino dude was just... He didn't give a care. You could just punch him in his face as much as you wanted. Kick, kick him. He, he doesn't give a shit. He's just going to keep walking you down and throwing his own strikes, man. I honestly felt like uh, it was pretty impressive all the way around. Obviously, this win is going to do absolutely zero to silence the critics of Sean O'Malley because this is another guy that he beats who's probably not quite on his level. But it is a win nonetheless, one that he needed. And I came away from this thing feeling like, man, we should get uh, Chris Motinho a fight that he has time to prepare for in the yeah. UFC, perhaps even at flyweight since he looked, uh, he looked a little bit outsized there at 135 pounds to my eye. Well, I think this fight is a good reminder of why people will take these fights. You know, like you put yourself in a tough situation when you make your UFC debut on two weeks notice against a guy who clearly the UFC is sort of invested in and wants to see good things happen for him. They they call you up and are willing to give you that fight and bring you into the UFC on it. It they probably aren't doing it because they want to be in the Chris Motrino business, you know? Like as so the reason people take those fights though is like, hey, if this is what I gotta do to get in the UFC, then fine. I'll go in there and even if the odds are against me, in this case heavily, heavily against you that's how you'll get your foot in the door and that's how you'll get people to look at you. And it kind of worked out as much as going in there and taking a hellacious ass kicking in your UFC debut can work out because we're talking about this guy on Monday morning. Like he got our attention and now we're, he has an opportunity to not only like a, to get another fight in the UFC and continue, but also we're going to be paying attention to that fight when they announce it, because we're going to want to see like, okay, what can he do with a full camp and against somebody he's like a little bit more on the level that he's at right now. And he, he has bought himself a portion of our attention and he just had to pay for it with a tremendous amount of brain trauma. Cause I don't, I mean, one thing you, when you go in there with this, this shock of bright green hair, you make it really easy for us to see when you're getting lit up. Because yeah. that hair is just flying all over the place like a goddamn neon sign saying, like, ass-kicking in progress. And yet, there was at least, you know, five to six times within those first just two rounds where I was like, well, okay, this has got to be over here soon. There's no way this guy can continue taking this kind of punishment. And not only was he taking it, Chad, he was the one coming forward for pretty much the entire fight here. He, he was the one pressing the action and kept coming after Sean O'Malley. You know, had a real speed disadvantage, couldn't really catch up to him. But there were some moments there where you could see on Sean O'Malley's face where he was like, okay, I I thought that we were going to be done with this by now. I thought that yeah. this night of work was going to be over by now. And I wish this guy would take a step back and and, and give me a second here. Like, I, he, you know, he's never really in any trouble, but he definitely was feeling like, all right, this is a harder job than I thought I had signed up for against this guy tonight. And he just and and he definitely could have kept coming the entire time if Herb Dean had not stopped him there in the final 30 seconds. Yeah, I guess the good news for Chris Moutinho is you get the $75,000 fight of the night bonus, which is probably 
a good payday for you coming in for this thing on short notice. What did you think of the stoppage? Because I know it was flying around online a lot when Herb Dean steps in 433 in the final round, 27 seconds to go. A lot of people, especially I noticed professional MMA fighters, were saying, let the kid finish the round. Like, at least then you can say, hey, I came in on short notice and went the distance with Sean O'Malley, went to a decision. Uh, does that mean anything to you? Like, I understand people saying that, and I know, I bet Chris Motinho wishes that he got to go the full distance, but just watching it at home, like, I couldn't be that mad at it just because, uh, like, clearly this was a one-sided affair and the guy had already taken a lot of damage. Yeah, I mean, here's one where I actually kind of have to agree with Dana White, which doesn't happen too often, but he said at the post-fight press conference that uh, you, you really could have stopped that fight around earlier. And it would have been okay. And I I don't think we can ask the referee, on top of everything else we ask them to do, I don't think we can ask them, like, well, be aware of the like clock at all times and change the way you referee the fight based on where you are. Right. I mean, that's just, we're asking too much. Herb Dean's got to be laser focused on what he's seeing in front of him. He shouldn't be looking up to see how much time is left in the final round and just thinking like, well, I want to let this kid go to the decision. Plus, well, I understand like, especially fighters like to make that distinction. Like, Hey, you know, sort of doing their own Jake LaMotta raging bull thing. Like you never got me down, Ray. And they, they want to be able to say like, okay, I wasn't knocked out. I wasn't finished. I, I made it to the, the decision. I don't think it matters all that much, to, especially in this situation, because it's like what he would have got the, you know, the tough guy points for being able to make it all the way to the scorecards, which were academic at that point. He already got that, though. Like, we're here talking about him. Everybody's talking about it. Like, what a tough guy performance it was. So he didn't lose anything, really, by being stopped there. And, like, I don't, I just, I just don't think that that distinction, like, hey, we should have let him take it. 30 seconds more of an ass kicking. Why? What What else would it have proved for him to do that? Like, I have no doubt that he could have taken it if you'd let him. I also feel like you could have stopped it way earlier and that would have also been fine. And I, I don't really have a problem with it except to say that I would wonder of Herb Dean, like, what did you see in that exact moment that was different from what you had seen for like the 14 minutes before this? Because that that exact exchange that he stepped in on wasn't even one of the worst ones of the fight. Like, that's the only thing I think you could really criticize him for. Other than that, I mean, like, you're kind of putting the refs in a, in a no-win situation if you're getting mad at a stoppage like that, but also getting mad if they let it go on too long. Next question this week comes to us from Yev Kasem, or Yev Kasem, writes, As a proud owner of some Ryan Hall jiu-jitsu tapes, it was pretty sad to see him get pounded out as he did on Saturday. I think he has officially went to the well too many times on his gimmicky entries, and I don't see much MMA upside for him in the UFC, but... But him and Cron Gracie are in the same weight class. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, this was a tough one uh, for Ryan Hall, who got pounded out. Uh, the Wizard of Falls Church, Virginia, did not did not fare too well here. Ilya uh, Topuria gets the victory first round late KO. And uh, this is one, honestly, where it looked like Ryan Hall was prepared to do one thing. And he was going to do that weird kind of like outside leg Iminari roll to try to get to a leg lock. And when that didn't work, he didn't have much else, or at least he didn't have time to transition to much else in this first round. Now, Ryan Hall has been a guy that we've been high on, that a lot of the MMA world has been high on, a guy who hasn't been able to find a fight, kind of a guy who very few people have been willing to fight, and a guy who has had some cancellations, some fights fall through on him. 
How much to, in your mind does this kind of uh, short circuit any momentum that Ryan Hall had or like how how much does this undermine your own interest in where Ryan Hall goes in his career here in the featherweight division? Well, on my uh, athletic mailbag this week, uh, at least occasional, and I, I think he's probably still a CME patron, Dak Wasson asked, uh, is Ryan Hall the Frank Zappa of MMA and that it's cool to say you like him, but nobody actually enjoys it? Uh, which I took a little bit of exception to because I, I do like what Ryan Hall brings. I, I'm kind of a sucker for that exact sort of like eccentric grappler character. But I will say the thing that he was doing, especially in this fight with and a point well made here by Yev Kasim about the entries, the gimmicky entries, as he calls them. But like that's the kind of thing where if it's going to work, it's probably going to work the first time, you know, like. After you give somebody a chance to see that, you know, two or three times and you still keep doing it, uh, they've got it scouted, man. Like they, they have, they know what you're doing. You're not surprising them with that anymore. And you probably got to have a plan B at that point. And he just kept going to it. And it was only a matter of time because the first couple of times you could see Ilya Toporia is just kind of like, let me just get out of here. Like, I don't know what the guy's doing, but I know I don't want any part of it. Let me just get clear of this shit and then make him stand back up and deal with him. But after a few times of that, he was like, okay, you want to keep doing this shit? I've figured out where the openings are and I'm just going to beat the shit out of you when you do it. So, like, he does have to have something else. And, like, it seems like Ryan Hall was one of these guys where he comes in with a certain set of skills that is maybe not the most well-rounded game we've seen but we were curious to see how far could you go with this particular thing i think we saw it i think this was a good example of i mean he did say afterwards i think that he broke his hand right away in the fight and so you know maybe that that affected him some but like i think what you saw here was us finding out the limitations of what he brings also shouts out to uh the soup nazi yev kasem for writing into the cme okay another uh seinfeld character yeah a lot yep. of Seinfeld characters in the CME mailbag these days. Uh, yeah, man, I got no problem watching Ryan Hall fight again, especially, you know, if he did break his hand early on and who knows how much that impacted his game plan and the various takedowns he thought he could try. Uh, but this did this did make me think, you know, he's probably not going to be a capital G guy unless he takes the steps to to round out some of the skill set there. And, and, you know, that's easier said than done for sure in a lot of different ways. But uh, I'll watch him again. I just don't know if... Uh, you know, how much stock I would put in Ryan Hall over the long term at this point. Next question this week comes to us from our guy, Jizzy B, who writes, for the sake of the UFC welterweight division, did the wrong guy win on Saturday? If Thompson wins, he fights Usman. Order is seemingly reset and restored. As a result, we get Masvidal versus Edwards and so on. Now, what the fuck do we got here? Help me sort it out. So, of course, Gilbert Burns goes out there, Ben, Defeats Stephen Thompson, the Wonder Man, via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. This was the co-main event of UFC 264. Uh, took some criticism from Dana White afterwards, saying he didn't think it was a good fight, although I thought it was a pretty good fight. Like, I thought it was tension-filled, if nothing else. You know, Gilbert Burns trying to work his wrestling game and and continually getting Stephen Thompson down, at least in the first and third rounds, enough to uh, to get that victory. Um, I, and to be honest with you, I don't know how high I was on the Wonder Man as a potential 
uh, challenger for Kamara Usman anyway. Like, I guess that fight makes sense and it would have been fun to watch. But I don't know that any of us were sitting here thinking that Stephen Thompson was going to walk out of that thing with the gold. Uh, Gilbert Burns now is 7-1 and one in his last eight fights. Of course, that loss is to Kamara Usman in their championship fight. So in that in that way, things are dimmed a little bit here. But I don't know. I don't necessarily know if the, uh, if the welterweight plan or the welterweight order was smashed with a sledgehammer just because Gilbert Burns got this victory. Yeah, I, I agree with you that it seemed like we were excited to see Kamara Usman have to take on the unique challenge that is the Wonder Man, but it wasn't like we were thinking that it was because there was a high probability that he'd lose, just that it would be something different. Because yeah. he already seems like you know he's in danger of going all the way into reruns when it comes to title challengers. And so I think that it was people going, well, okay, there's a fresh one he hasn't seen yet and a style we haven't seen him against yet, so like maybe that would be something different. But I'd also say, if you can be beaten via being taken down and held down by Gilbert Burns then you probably were not going to do a whole lot better than that against Kamar Usman, who can definitely, I mean, he's been knocking people out and stuff lately, but let's not forget, that guy knows his way around a takedown and some top control. So that was probably just going to happen to you there anyway. I, I do think, though, that the nature of like this win, I did not find it particularly compelling, uh, apart from the part at like the last 10 seconds when Gilbert Burns just decided to say, fuck the unified rules, I'm going to just tee off on the back of your head, neck, and spine area. Uh, but I think that since he already has that reason lost to Kamaru Usman, and since this was not exactly a thrilling fight, it just puts him sort of back in the pack where he's going to have to win at least one more, maybe you know two or three more even, depending on what else we're doing in the welterweight division, before we start to come back around to Gilbert Burns again. Next question this week comes to us from the Great Dane, who writes, referencing post-fight bonuses being bumped to $75,000 for UFC 264 from BloodyElbow.com. Probably not. Probably not, Dana White said when asked if the new bonus structure will be permanent. It will seriously fuck up our budget. Discourse, please. Now, see, I've said this to you. I don't know if I've said it on the air yet, but I kind of feel like Dana White keeps saying the quiet part out loud in some of his recent quotes and on the surface, uh, there's nothing really that that wrong with saying bumping bonuses up to $75,000 would, would mess up our budget. Even though I think we know that the UFC in previous times has spent money on whatever Dana White wanted them to spend money on from one moment to the next, uh, reach into the pocket for an extra, uh, ultimate fighter contract when you need one. Sure. Why not throw an extra bonus out there? Why not? You know, but, uh, what he is really saying here is that you can't take bonuses up to $75,000 all the time as long as the UFC is really in the business of turning a nice profit for Endeavor. Because what he's saying is, hey man, we got to do these fights and do these events and we got to come in under budget because what we're doing right now is all about making money for the parent company and uh, maybe keeping that stock price up too. So we got to play it a little close to the vest here monetarily. Okay, so... The extra $15,000 per bonus, you got four bonuses per events, right? So you're you're thinking about an extra $60,000 uh, per event. Let's say 42 events, extra $60,000 for all those events brings you in at around $2.5 million extra per year. Now, Chad? Also, AKA a Dana White Saturday night in Vegas. The live gate for this event was 
$15,759,800. So, you know, like a pittance compared to the live gate of this one big event. Also, this is the company that just signed the 175 million 10-year deal to put crypto.com across everybody's chests and really fuck up the already not exactly spectacular fight kit look. By the way, those crypto.com Venom fight kit shirts sell at the arena for $80. <laughs> I wanted to hang around just to see if anybody would buy one just so I could get up in their face and be like, what is wrong with you? Why Why are you doing this to yourself? But this is a company that, you know, according to that, uh, that Morgan Stanley analysis that we read, you know, currently their revenues per year are like around or above 800 million. They project that here just in the next few years, it'll top a billion dollars in revenue a year. We're talking about $2.5 million extra to bump those bonuses up, which have not changed in years. Like as they have not changed for like a cost of living increase or like to account for inflation or anything. It's been $50,000 for years. It used to be like sometimes you could show up and that'd be like a, a fight night on versus and maybe the bonuses would be 75000 back when they, they fluctuated some and they set them at 50000 haven't budged them for years. Like it's not at all unreasonable. And for Dana White to be like, oh, that would seriously mess up our budget. Yeah, that tells you that like the budget is just dependent on the fighters never getting any sort of like even incremental increase in the pay that they get. Would seriously fuck up our budgets as Dana White hoping no one notices what that implies broadly <laughs> to the UFC's business practices. Uh, last question this week comes to us from Josh Mani, who writes, am I the only one who, who noticed whoever is in charge of putting up the tweets on the screen, put up Bjorn Rebney's Mexico tweet from 2014 when Irene Aldana won solid work. He writes, how did this get up there, man? <laughs> that's that's good social media trolling. It just is. Whoever, you, somebody, they must have been sitting on this one for a while, right? Like somebody must have like been, they had that one from the archives sitting there. I mean, like waiting for I mean, just the right opportunity. Ex- explain to me how this happens. Does someone create a fake Bjorn Rebney account and then tweet it on Fight Night with the UFC 264 hashtag? But how, so how does the how does the tweet wind up on my television screen? I mean, don't you think that they just they thought about that one as that like, you know, one of those weird Bjorn Rebney moments people still like to joke about, like where he just tweets Mexico in all caps and they were just like somebody got the idea. Oh, let's let's So you say, think this was a joke? Yeah. From the, oh, from 100% the people in the truck. A joke. They know what they're doing. Well, that's a solid joke then. Whoever's doing that. That's yeah, that's, that's more cre- that's more credit than I would ever give whoever is picking the tweets. Just given what we've seen from the other yes. tweets we've seen that make it on, on the screen. Yeah, especially because in general, there seems to be like a template at work where it's just like famous person says anything, even look, doesn't even have to be like really praising what they're seeing. A famous person just has to mention that that it is on and that they are watching or are aware of it. And that's going on there. Other than that, it's usually just somebody be like, these guys are swanging and boom, <laughs> you're, you're on the broadcast. You know, so it's like somebody is having a little bit of fun and also they're throwing a bone for the hardcore there that's that's a little easter egg that yes, only people are. like us are going to notice and they, they know that they know what they're doing and you're right that does that does improve my general take on whoever is behind this who's ever responsible like they if maybe if they were allowed to spread their wings and fly a little bit 
maybe we'd see some more interesting stuff. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. Remember, if you have a question, comment, or concern for the podcast, you know what to do. You go to the website, comainevent.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. And to his credit, Conor McGregor came out and did the stuff that every single analyst whose articles I read or whose videos I watched leading up to UFC 264 said that he needed to do. He diversified his attack. He threw a bunch of kicks, not only to keep Dustin Poirier uh, from throwing his own kicks, but to also disrupt Poirier's entries into those striking combinations. And still, we ended up down the stretch in the first round on the ground with Dustin Poirier on top, raining down strikes. And if you've watched Conor McGregor fights before, you likely knew that those were going to be his best minutes of the fight. Maybe not, but generally speaking, that's sort of how his fights have gone. He starts fast, uh, and then he fades. And then, of course, we get into this bizarre situation where Conor McGregor breaks his leg in the final seconds of the first round here. We get a, as he was intent to point out, Dr. Stoppage uh, as a result. And now we don't really know what is the deal moving forward. We don't know how long Conor McGregor's uh, injury will, will keep him out. We we were pretty sure Dustin Poirier is rolling into a fight against Charles Oliveira for the lightweight title. But Conor McGregor's future are much more cloudy moving forward. I guess talk a little bit about what your take was on the fight. And then maybe we can talk about the future of Conor McGregor. Uh, a little bit later on in this round. But just from what you saw out there for the third fight between Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor, what struck you? Okay, first of all, before we go any further, I want to correct myself no. on a fact. No, check you my, don't You don't have to do that. Just, check, my, check my math. It's actually $4 million extra. Uh, you know, I, I was wrong on that. But the, that's still like, you know, a quarter of what they made in LiveGate just on this event. So all the people, if you're furiously writing me an email right now, you can stop it. Um. The moment I realized we were going to have an injury TKO stoppage here in this fight, I went, oh, God damn it. Because I wanted to be done with this one, you know? Like, I felt like, okay, fine. I understand how you can justify a trilogy here. You know, Conor McGregor wins the first one years ago. Dustin Poirier comes back pretty decisively, knocks him out in the rematch. But if McGregor demands an instant rematch, one thing we've learned, he's going to get an instant rematch. And and that's kind of the time when you see him turn around and fight, you know, a few months after his last fight. It's usually in those kind of situations, like happened with Nate Diaz, happens here. I went, okay, we're going to go ahead and do this thing. But I was expecting much the same fight, if not like a, a more decisive win for Dustin Poirier. I, I picked him all the way and thought he's just, at this point, the better fighter. And as long as he doesn't get knocked out in the first round when Conor McGregor is dangerous, then he's going to win it. And then it's going to be over and Conor McGregor will move on, do something else. And then when you saw him go down, you realize like, okay, we didn't get a decisive ending. We didn't get the clear ending. We got an ending due to injury. I went, it's just, it's just going to continue on, man. Like We're not going to be done with it. And sure enough, 
Uh, Conor McGregor is saying we're not done with it. Dustin Poirier is like, well, after he talked to all that shit, uh, threatening to kill me and talk about my wife, I'm going to fight him in the octagon or the sidewalk, whatever I have to do. And then, you know, everybody is talking up the stuff saying like a fourth fight is what you have to do. And I felt like, man, you really don't. You don't. You really you don't. You don't have to do it. You know what? He's going to be out a while with yeah. this. Like, so it, this is not the kind of thing you bounce right back from. He's going to be out a while. Maybe that's the best thing for Conor McGregor because as we talked about a little bit on the, the Power Hour on Friday, it just felt like the whole routine was getting a little stale this week. It felt like, you know, he's going back into like, you know, pre-fight talking massive amounts of shit mode after being super nice guy with Dustin Poirier last time. But it also just felt like it's it's not popping the way it used to, man. It's just the same old shtick. And especially after some of the post-fight stuff that was a real, real bad look for Conor McGregor, I think the maybe the best thing that could happen for him is for him to sort of disappear out of our view, out of the public eye for, you know, nine months to a year. And let it, give us a chance to miss him. Give yeah. us a chance to like to maybe forget some of the more distasteful parts of the last week, and then maybe come back and see where everybody is. Because he could come back and do a trilogy with Nate Diaz. Let's say if Dustin Poirier has the belt, that's kind of the only way I would think that it, the UFC would even be like, uh, you know, you can't justify throwing Conor McGregor right back in there if Dustin Poirier beats Charles Oliveira and becomes lightweight champ. But if he doesn't, or if he loses the belt, or if they're just in a different situation by the time Conor McGregor's ready to fight again, I guess fine. You could go come back and do it. But for the time being, I I feel like we saw what we needed to see. Yeah, I agree with you. I feel like if Conor McGregor was smart, and frankly, being smart about his image for a long time was one of the things that we lauded this guy for, I do feel like it would be good for him if we just didn't hear from him for a while. Like if he uh, if he took his Ric Flair gimmick and went and worked a different territory uh, for six months, and then when he came back, we could all kind of be excited about the return of Conor McGregor, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know that we're going to get that because it kind of seems like his ego will not let him walk away. He is out there today uh, seemingly just posting random screenshots of uh, Dustin Poirier during an interview. So I don't know that Conor McGregor is really going to have the good sense to kind of let this one lie and accept the loss and go out and and, uh, and fade away for a little while. Uh Let's talk just a little bit about the fight. Like he, this dude does come out throwing all those kicks. I don't know if we got some, we got some emails to the podcast about this. And then I saw Eric Nixick on Twitter today talking yeah. about how his mom uh, texted him at seven o'clock in this morning, yeah. this morning with some film study. I think uh, his mom nailed it. I think maybe she's, she, she, she answered the question for us. I agree. I think so too. And some listeners to the co-main event podcast were eagle eyed enough to see it and send us emails about it, but it sure looks Moments before that leg break, like Conor McGregor throws a front kick that Dustin Poirier blocks with his elbow. And that like almost immediately afterward is when Conor McGregor steps back and the leg just completely gives out. And like, frankly, that's kind of what Dustin Poirier said, too, in the immediate aftermath of this fight, saying, I checked one of those kicks and it cracked. And then I think uh, he thought it was much earlier in the round. Well, yeah, I think he, he might have thought it was like an actual like uh like leg textbook check. leg yeah. check, but uh, it kind of looks like this is what happened that, that Conor McGregor out here utilizing a bunch of techniques that he doesn't normally utilize. Uh, and then he gets, he gets this like either freak accident or an accident caused by Dustin Poirier checking one with his elbow. And now he's out for a while, which I thought, um, I don't know. It's either, it's either a bad, 
bad luck thing for Conor McGregor, or I guess you got to give Dustin Poirier the credit for uh, for defending the kicks. Yeah, I mean, I think it could be both, honestly. Um, from my perspective on media row, I was, you know, I, Conor McGregor had his back to me in that moment, and they th- are trading left hands, and they both miss. I thought that. Poirier dropped him. I thought it was a punch because it, it was sort of like right after he'd gotten up after being roughed up on the mat for a while there. And I thought Poirier clipped him and he went down. And then when he stayed down there, I thought maybe he got hurt on the the fall after like maybe if he, you know, sometimes we've seen people, you get clipped just right and you, you fall in a way that twists something. And then when I saw some of the replays afterwards, it was just like, God, another one of these, man, another one of these terrible bone break kind of finishes. It's just... I know I'm going to spend the next few days scrolling quickly past screenshots and GIFs and uh, like slow motion video when people keep trying to post it on the timeline because I just, I just, that's the kind of stuff I never want to see again once I've seen it happen once. Um, and yet, I can't think of a worse post fight look at a moment like that than when you are immobile on the mat, back against the fence while they're trying to stabilize your leg. You can't even get up, man. And you're sitting there threatening to kill the guy and talking shit to his wife. It's just like that. I feel like Conor McGregor used to be at least a little bit gracious in defeat. And I can understand if he didn't regard this one as a true defeat. I, I get that. But also, what happened to the guy who would be like, oh, well, you know, it's a bad break. These things can happen in the fight game. It's crazy. Fair play to him. The kind of stuff you like instead, it's I'll fucking kill you. Your wife, you mint your hoe. And you're just like, wow, man, do you, that's just, that's the worst possible way you could respond to it. Yeah. Uh, which is very much in keeping from, of what we've seen from him in recent times, frankly. Uh, Dustin Poirier is one of the more remarkable evolutionary stories in, in the UFC to go from being a guy who was perennially like under, under appreciated and overlooked uh, and underestimated as a, a featherweight early in his career to now having this run of victories late in his career. And unless things go real far off the rails in terms of another fight with Conor McGregor, essentially the guy who unraveled Conor McGregor for the most part in the UFC is a is a hell of a thing for Dustin Poirier. And frankly, if the next step for him is a fight for the title against Charles Oliveira. Not only do I feel like he has earned it and it would be an incredible feel-good story for Dustin Poirier to get that second chance to win the title, but also give it to me, it's mine. That seems like an incredible fight and one that I'm super excited to watch. Uh, And what happens after that with Conor McGregor and his recovery and whether or not he comes back and who is the champion and all this different stuff, honestly, I don't even really care right now. Just like give me... Chucky Olives versus Dustin Poirier for the title and give it to me as soon as we can. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that I, at least I hope that that's obvious to everybody that that is the thing that we absolutely need to do. And we can move on to like the, the fresh and actually important business in that division. Plus that just should be an awesome fight. I'm just looking forward to seeing that fight and uh, to seeing how it goes. And I think that either way it goes, that's when we will start to feel like maybe we're, all the way past the Khabib era. Because I think now, and it's a natural consequence of when you have a super dominant champ who retires with the belt undefeated, and then we have to have a tight, uh, a fight for the vacant title. And sure, that guy's going to be the champ, but it's it doesn't totally feel that way yet. Didn't beat the man to become the man. Wasn't given a chance to beat the man, but still. like 
I think, though, that whether Charles Oliveira defends the belt against Dustin Poirier, whether Poirier takes it off of him after this, you know, high-profile run of fights against Conor McGregor, either way, we'll come out of that one and we'll be saying, like, okay, now it feels like we know who the champ is and we can move on with some, like, peace of mind. Yeah. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two this week. Ben, did you check out Ariel Helwani's appearance over there? on the Dan Lebetard show over on Meadowlark Media today. Okay, first of all, I, I saw a clip, but I couldn't be sure it was actually Ariel Helwani because it was a, there was a masked man that I saw yeah. speaking. Yeah, Luchador came on mm-hmm. the Lebetard show, which is, you know, they have fun over there on the Lebetard show. I just want to read this quote and then uh, a couple of the responses from other media members that I saw. He's just, here's what Ariel Helwani had to say about his relationship with Dana White while he was working at ESPN. From the moment it was made public in mid-May that I was going to ESPN, Dana White tried to get me to not even make it to my first day. He raised hell to try to stop me from getting to my first day. To the credit of a lot of the executives there, they all said no. They gave me shows. They gave me opportunities. But for the next three years, it was one roadblock after the next. There was one issue after the next. I'll tell you a story. I've never even shared this story. But when I would be at events, let's say it's a weigh-in and there's a desk there and I'm doing something, but Dana White is coming in as a guest in 30 minutes or something like that, I would have to be escorted out of the venue because per his request, I couldn't be in the vicinity, in his vicinity or in his line of sight. So here I am on the set of a company that I work for and security, the nicest people in the world who were embarrassed that they had to do this would tell me, I'm sorry, Ariel, but we have to walk you out. And then you get uh, Josh Gross, who follows up. He says, this is from Josh Gross. He says, I did serious journalism about MMA at ESPN, legit enterprise reporting that made a difference and experienced many of the same things Dana White did to Ariel. Uh, I've also been banned from the UFC since 2005. This isn't new. Uh, White promised to ruin me. This is how he operates. In many ways, uh, White got what he wanted, but as he knows, I'm a stubborn son of a bitch. It's been a struggle for me to stay in the MMA journalism business and to make a living. It really has. I'm not alone. White is attempting to drive out many reporters uh, from covering the sport. It's heinous. And then uh, my former colleague, Jonathan Snowden from Bleacher Report, says, same thing here. They will go after a site's sponsors, explicitly ask for your dismissal, and generally play very dirty. Eventually being banned by the UFC made it too hard to compete with peers who would do live event coverage. They got me. Just a delayed reaction after the hit. Are you fucking kidding me, man? How long we've been doing this? 20 years we've been doing this with this guy? That this is how we play, and if they don't like you, they will try to ruin your professional career. It's just fucking ridiculous, man. Are you fucking kidding me with all this stuff? Which isn't new, and no one is surprised to hear it, especially if you work in this industry. But come the fuck on with this bullshit. Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Well, my are you fucking kidding me seems trivial now by comparison. So thanks. Oh, I lay it on me. I'd love to hear it. I'm ready for some some triviality, trivialality, trivial. Can, can we talk trivial nature? Can we talk about how Michel Pierre successfully landed a head kick to a downed opponent and got away with it? Because Chad, he remembered. The rule that John Jones taught us when he pulled off that spinning back fist or spinning back elbow on Stefan Bonner, 
that actually, upon further review, looks like it lands to the back of the head. But everybody just gets so excited about seeing crazy, awesome spinning and or flipping shit that they don't even really notice whether what you did is technically, by the books, a foul. And you know what? Maybe it's for the best. Like I've said before, I think that if you can hit somebody in the back of the head while you're facing them, that maybe you should be allowed to get away with it. If you can sort of kick somebody in the head while making it look like incidental contact in the course of a backflip, maybe you should be allowed to get away with that. But are you fucking kidding me? For a minute there, it looked like maybe Michel Pereira was not going to give us what we came to see there. Maybe he was not, He, you know, you get through the round, he throws in a flip at the end of the f- first round and you go like, well, okay. That's like, you know, Leonard Skinner knows they got to play Freebird at some point, getting it out of the way. Then he goes and does some beautiful Weirdsmobile shit like this. Are you fucking kidding me, man? Fucking kidding me. You know what? If you if that's Nico Price kind of looked up like, hey, did you notice you just kicked me in the head? And everybody is going, oh shit, no, we didn't, bro. We don't care that much. <laughs> that's gonna do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Round number two. Chad, I think that it is time, time for the UFC and Dana White to admit that as much as you think he ought to be good, as much as it seems like he should be good, Greg Hardy is not really that good of a fighter. And this comes after the UFC has continually stood behind Greg Hardy, who you know was problematic as just a figure when he came in, tried their damnedest to push a redemption story for Greg Hardy, even as he refused to do even a little bit of the stuff that typically comes with a redemption arc, while he continued to insist that, you know, he had never been convicted of domestic violence when in fact he had. And yet, through it all, this experiment ongoing, keep giving him prime card placement, keep putting him in these good spots, keep trying to set him up and, and push him as a big thing, But Greg Hardy just can't beat people who are at the UFC level. And here we saw it again as he goes out there and he gets knocked out by Tai Tuivasa in the first round. And even Dana White seemed like maybe he was coming around to it. Because I asked him at the press conference about, hey, at this point, what do you say about the guy? Because he doesn't have any wins over anybody who is still a UFC heavyweight. When he does face like actual UFC heavyweights, he loses. At what point do you have to maybe course correct and be like maybe this experiment is not going to work out dana white's response tonight was a big night for him tonight was a really big night tied to Ivasa would have been a real win for him so i don't know what this means for him tonight kind of sounds like even dana white is considering getting off the greg hardy bandwagon meanwhile tied to Ivasa becomes a hero to all by walking out to the spice girls knocking out the reviled greg hardy doing a shoey on top of the cage and then basically drinking every motherfucker's beer in the place on his way out of the arena. Chad, after he exited, the arena staff had to go along that little route with towels, cleaning up all the spilled beer. And it was a significant amount of beer. Yeah. I mean, hey, man, I feel like this was kind of like a star-making moment for Tai Tuivasa, a guy who's been in the UFC for a while and a guy that we have all seen fight and we know him as like, 
an exciting strike-minded heavyweight, but a guy who was, you know, never seemed like a guy who suddenly was going to mess around and win the title or was going to be like a big deal in that division. But this was kind of like a star-making moment for him as far as I'm concerned. Like just looking at the social media impressions and how bad everybody kind of freaked out after this this performance by Tai Tuivasa, I feel like you kind of have something with this guy. Uh, and maybe he's not the best heavyweight out there. Maybe he doesn't have the highest ceiling, but I feel like you could put him in, in fun spots and let Tai Tuivasa do his thing. Unfortunately, like I just don't really have any confidence that that's even the thing that the UFC does anymore, that they're like even in the business of of finding a fun guy that fans like and putting him in fights in high spots that that seems like he could get some attention. Like it could, they're kind of doing it for Greg Hardy, despite the fact that he's been in the UFC two and a half years. He's had nine fights. He's four, four and one, and he's two and three in his last five. We're still putting him out there on pay-per-view cards, at least up until Saturday night. Uh, so uh, yeah, man, with Tai Tuivasa, I thought it was incredible. I thought he was the star of UFC 264, really, uh, aside from, you know, Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier, uh, fulfilling their trilogy and all the weird shit that happened at the end of that fight. The other thing I'm going to remember from this is Tai Tuivasa, to be perfectly honest with you. And like for for a guy at that level, that's amazing, man. That's an amazing performance in the crowded UFC landscape where it is so hard to differentiate yourself or distinguish yourself in any way, and especially in a positive way. Uh, Tai Tuivasa did it all, man. He had a he had a great performance, and I hope he didn't catch a weird mouth fungus. Uh, from drinking a bunch of beers out of people's shoes on the way out. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know how they that joke was going around, like, oh, if you've ever like, you know, eaten something that fell on the floor of a frat house, you don't have to worry about what's in the coronavirus vaccine. If you can make it through that that gauntlet of shoeies that Tai Tuivasa just went through, and not come down with several forms of sickness, you're basically immortal after yeah. that you see somebody pour dustin poirier's hot sauce in one of them i'm gonna say i, I don't know exactly what the shoey etiquette is but i feel like that's poor form man yeah Did even tai tuivasa after that was like that was uncalled for right like <laughs> takes a lot to get tai tuivasa to be like you went too far man yeah you went too far <laughs> he's there, there is a human being on the other end of that shoey god damn it like, you know he's not just like a walking trash compactor let's 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 have a little bit of uh, thought to, for the guy's health. But, I mean, I, I agree that Tai Tuivasa is somebody, if you put him in some let me bang bro fights, sure. Like, I, I think that there's some excitement that you can work up there. Also, though, I, I can't help but think about Derek Lewis when I think about Tai Tuivasa, because Derek Lewis is somebody where it was like, he, he was kind of shaping up to be the same kind of dude, but then he at least learned how to do his version of the ground game. You know, the, the, the just get up jujitsu game that uh, Derek Lewis has learned. You got to have something like that. You can't just be the guy where they go, well, this dude can give us some fun fights and have some exciting wins as long as we keep him away from anybody who knows how to double leg and look for a submission. Like you, you, you do have to have some kind of a well-rounded game, but yet also like, let's allow for the possibility that Tai Tuivasa, like a lot of people, maybe is a work in progress. And uh, could continue, but like, you, you, anytime you see the guy, whether it's at weigh-ins or at, at a press conference or something, he just you look at him and you want to smile. He looks like he's always having a good time. He has a kind of an infectious enthusiasm, and I, I don't know. He, he feels like somebody it would be easy for fans to get behind. 
Yeah, you should give him at least as much rope as you have given Greg Hardy yes. to this point. Uh, and a guy like, frankly, promoting Greg Hardy, as we have talked about a bunch on all of our properties, it was cynical from the start because the only reason that Greg Hardy has any more notoriety than any other former athlete from a different sport who crosses over to MMA was that he, because he was infamous for committing an ugly domestic violence incident. And like that was entirely what all of his notoriety was based around. So to take that guy and continually put him in big spot after big spot after big spot, despite the fact that at every step along the way, he gave us reason to believe that he wasn't going to be that great of an MMA fighter. It's just like a cynical money grab, man. And for what? It doesn't even seem like Greg Hardy like really brought any fans. Didn't seem like he brought a bunch of mainstream attention. Uh, he's just a big dude who was athletic and famous for all of the wrong reasons that we kept putting in high profile situations for reasons. I honestly like can't even fathom as I sit here and I agree with you now. I think it's, it, it should be over, but as I've said in the past, the place where I think things should be over and the place where the UFC thinks things should be over is often pretty vast. There's probably often a pretty big difference between that. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with that dude. Yeah. That's going to go for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben... There was a lot going on during the UFC 264 broadcast. Not only did you have your regular three-man play-by-play booth at Cage Side with John Anik and Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier, but you had two additional broadcast desks, one with Dominic Cruz and Michael Bisping, and for some reason Stephen A. Smith, and another one outside the arena with Karen Bryant and Max Kellerman. And on top of that, we had these weird backstage walk and talk exchanges where Laura Sanko would ride up in an escalator while doing an intro about Dustin Poirier. And then, oh, my God, just happened to run into Megan O'Leavy in the hallway and hand the broadcast off to her so she could talk about Conor McGregor. And that's to say nothing of these like multiple, extremely strained video vignettes. One where we talked to a literal jeweler about diamonds i'm sorry what because dustin poirier's nickname is the diamond and what did we learn from the jewel i mean you have to keep in mind for the, for the purposes of this round i've i didn't see any of the broadcasts because i was at the motherfucker what did well, the jeweler say about the properties of diamonds that helped us understand the essence of dustin poirier ben we learned that diamonds often start out rough but then once uh, they are processed okay. and shaped and fitted then they can be exactly what you want them to be, man. One of the greatest stones that you can find on this earth. We did an entire vignette about the man in the arena quote, uh, which apparently is very meaningful to Dustin Poirier. That's, uh, fighters a, love that one, man. We did a vignette about Conor McGregor being the Forbes number one earning athlete for the year, despite the fact that he didn't make very much of that money fighting in the UFC. He had to go out and make it elsewhere. The UFC still likes to talk about it. Look, I know what we're doing here. Right. It's UFC 264. ESPN is trying to make it feel special. They're trying to make it feel like a big broadcast, a big event. And maybe they think 
an awful lot of casual fans are going to tune in for this one who don't normally tune in for UFC events, and maybe it would help them to see some familiar faces and Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman and Teddy Atlas and all these other people. But I just keep coming back to it, man. Why is it so hard to just give me MMA people talking about MMA? And like, I, I wonder, and it's, it's not like MMA doesn't have a bunch of good broadcasters, because we do. I just mentioned a bunch of them. Megan Olivi, Laura Senko, John Anik. Uh, the UFC has a bunch of former fighters in, in, in Cormier and Bisping and Cruz and Paul Felder and all of these guys who can do this job. Why do we have to, to stock this broadcast with all these people that every time they talk about it, it rings false? And you know as well as I do. MMA fans are very territorial, I think sometimes to our detriment, but sometimes we just tune in and we feel insulted, man, because these people who don't know anything about the sport are on the biggest show of the year trying to talk to us about the sport that we follow that we that they are just parachuting in to cover. And like, I wonder, does ESPN not know? Do they not care enough to know that it is insulting to hardcore MMA fans to tune in to see that? Or do they not care? My counter to that would be to say that is not for us. That's not what they're doing it for because they know. I think that they are at least aware enough to know like, okay, we bring in Stephen A. Smith and maybe Max Kellerman for stuff like this. The MMA fans are going to bitch and complain about it because that's what they do. And they know that the MMA fans are territorial and that they're going to react poorly and stuff like that. But they also know that they'll still watch the next one. Because they're in, man. They're they're in this shit for life. Or at least, you know, not going to be driven away by something like that. They, and in fact, maybe they'll even enjoy complaining about it. Who this is for is for all the people who are going to be watching this pay-per-view or this broadcast who don't normally watch the UFC. But are maybe like kind of general mainstream sports fans. And if they see Stephen A. Smith on the TV, they go, okay, it must be a big event. Because they brought Stephen A. Smith to it. Like, that's what it's... It's supposed to be shorthand for big event. And I think that that, to a lot of people, it probably does read that way. And if you don't know enough to know that he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about, then probably it's fine. As for all the other stuff, talking to the jeweler about the properties of a diamond, doesn't that just seem to you like they went, hey, we need to... We need to prepare a bunch of material here. And also maybe... They're having the same problem that everybody is having in the MMA media when it comes to a fight like this, where you're doing the rematch like six months after the, the, or you're doing the rubber match six months after the rematch, and people are going, "What is there left to say? Like, what new is there left to say here? Like, we we feel like we just did this, and yet they also go, "We got to propagate this broadcast with a ton of like little vignette stuff," uh, and so in trying to get creative with ideas, sometimes. You you reach too far and and overextend yourself and get into a bad idea, but like that's what that sounds like to me. I mean, that's me having not seen it, not having had to sit through it, but that's what it feels like at least. And also, hey, if we're gonna get started uh, going into expert testimony territory with everybody's nickname, we could have some real fun with that. Like if we get a when Francis Ngannou fights next, and we get a uh, like a zoologist to tell us about the nature of predators, <sighs> you know, classic predator behavior. Uh, maybe we even just do like an oral history about the movie Predator. I, I don't know. We could we could really get into some cool shit there that would be absolutely ridiculous and in a fun way. I just want Bill Duke shaving, talking about the Predator. <laughs> Going to catch them, carve your name into him. You know what I mean? 
yeah, fair enough about the casual fan, and I get it, and uh, that's what I said earlier. But like, the fact is, at this point, the reason that ESPN and the UFC are so cozy is that the UFC is going great guns on ESPN Plus and exceeding all expectations and driving all these subscriptions and whatnot, and ESPN couldn't be happier, and everybody's getting the bundle. Mickey Mouse just got a new diamond ring for Minnie for Christmas. Uh, that's us, man. That's the hardcore fans. We're the ones getting the ESPN subscriptions so that uh, we can watch Islam Makachev and uh, whoever he's fighting, Tiago Moises. Moises. How do you say? I'm butchering this dude's name, and I apologize for that. But that's that's us. That's not the guy. That's not. Uh, you know, Johnny football down from the bar who finds out Conor McGregor's going to fight. So he plunks down 70 bucks to watch the pay-per-view. Like the, the hardcore fan is, is the one that is making the UFC like the jewel of the ESPN plus library at this point, throw us a bone, man. Don't, don't waste my time trying to get me to listen to the thing was over, Ben, the biggest pay-per-view event of the year got over and instantly, you know what they did? They kicked it to Max Kellerman and Tony Atlas or Teddy Atlas to wrap it up. And I was just like, fuck are we doing here, man? Well, I mean, at least Teddy Atlas is sort of interested in the MMA space these days and his podcast when he interviews MMA fighters. And and, and Teddy Atlas, after having just interviewed the guy for a story a few weeks ago, I appreciate Teddy Atlas's uh, faculty with a metaphor. He uh, he got metaphor for days, and, and I like Teddy Atlas. But I think the other ones, uh, the thing that I think is the most disappointing about stuff like that is, like you said, they have these other people who actually this is what they do yeah. is like MMA broadcast stuff. And especially, you know, they had Ariel Helwani for a while and that was like he he would be perfect in those roles doing that stuff. And they still have Megan O'Leary and Laura Senko. And it's like and, you know, you also got like DC and a bunch of other fighters who have transitioned into like being really good sort of color commentator analyst roles stuff. You have the people and then you choose these other people to do this stuff like that's. That's the part to me that seems the most galling. Right. You know who I actually felt worse for uh, was Karen Bryant. Like, And I know Karen Bryant is not everybody's favorite. Her work is not everybody's favorite in this space. But she's been covering MMA for like 20 years, man, 15 years, right? And like her job at this pay-per-view was to sit at a desk and pitch questions to Max Kellerman. And I was just like, man, that sucks. We're not even giving these people a chance. And you say that that was the one outside the arena? Because I don't know if I have completely driven this point home yet or not, it was basically the surface of the sun. In Dog, Las Max Vegas Kellerman was, was sitting out there with his sunglasses on, looking like he just came in from a bender. Like he couldn't believe that they were having him sit out there and he would kill for a vodka tonic right then was the look that was on his face. He just got out of an Uber with Raggedy Ann and Andy and uh, went straight to the desk. All right, let's do our uh, just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, all the other stuff that we might say about Conor McGregor, and much of it is ugly, and almost all of it is true, we do have to give him, and maybe more importantly, the team around him credit for successfully branding this whiskey company in a way that it has become synonymous with the person. Because walking around UFC 264 on Saturday night, walking around T-Mobile Arena, I saw tons of people wearing proper 12 like t-shirts and hats holding up irish flags that just said proper 12 like across in a, in a you know maybe borderline disrespectful way to the irish flag but like the the brand of whiskey you people are buying the stuff 
as a way to show their fandom of the fighter. Like, that really worked, man. They yeah. came up with basically a, just a well whiskey to try to get like a, a sub Jameson level well whiskey that sells for slightly more and just successfully branded the hell out of it and then sold it for a whole bunch or sold the controlling stake in it for a whole bunch of money and have made it into like a, a, just a avatar for the fighter himself and it's working. People yeah. are actually buying into it, and they're they're out there at the venue, Chad, paying twenty two bucks for a proper twelve in Coke. I'm just saying, credit where it's due, man. They did a number on that one because w- those of us who've been in this space long enough, we start to hear, oh, this fighter is coming out with his own line of whiskey, huh? I will a, I'm sure it'll be terrible, and b, maybe end up losing a bunch of money. Nope they they knew what they were doing, they knew what they had, and they knew how that was going to be a success. And they pulled it off. I'm just saying, I got to give them credit for that. Yeah, it's the it was the perfect uh, cross promotional marketing endeavor, like the perfect yep. the perfect business opportunity for Conor McGregor, and they knocked it out of the park. Ah, uh, this didn't come up when we were talking about that fight, but I am a little worried now because Conor McGregor does not historically cope with downtime all that Uh-oh. well, and your boy Conor seemingly is about to have a lot of downtime. And so I hope we can, maybe he'll be bedridden because of the broken leg and he won't be out stomping on people's phones at the Fontaine blue at 5. AM. But I don't know, man, I shudder to think what's going to happen. And if he's out for like two years or something, what's he going to do, man? How wild is it going to get? That's not even my just saying stuff. Uh, whoa, whoa. Well, wait, you know what uh, I would say though, is that, you know what I hear is a really good rehab therapy uh, getting in the water, working on that. Then you can also promote water safety awareness. Uh, not two birds with one stone there. Boom. Plus, not, how, how much trouble can the guy cause from good. a wheelchair? You know, that did not get us anywhere good the first time. You plenty <laughs> and you know it. All right, Ben. Uh, this is from last week, but I still wanted to bring it up because we did not give a, uh, get a good chance to talk about it. Uh, I'm just going to read from this release here. The UFC and Battle Motors announce new innovative marketing partnership. Now, here's the thing. This press release is about, eh, it's about four paragraphs long. So you start and it's talking about Battle Motors is named the first ever official light duty truck of the UFC. Battle Motors also named first ever presenting partner of the UFC's light heavyweight division. The world's premier mixed martial arts organization is now sponsored by Crane Carrier, a Battle Motors truck company. And you read on and on about how awesome this is that... Uh, the light heavyweight division is now sponsored by Crane Carrier and Battle Motors. And then you get to the end. You get all the way down to the end. Second to last sentence in the whole thing. It says, Crane Carrier Company specializes in heavy duty refuse and recycling trucks. Okay. So, Ben, the UFC light heavyweight division is now the trash truck division of the UFC. <laughs> How are you going to do that, man? How are you going to play 205 like that? Make it the trash truck division of the UFC. Jan Blakovitz is riding out to the cage in a dump truck. Man, come on. Trash truck division. I'm just saying. Well, I just hope that we continue this trend and we come up with different sponsors to sponsor each division because we could have a lot of fun with that. Get a brand of spark plugs for flyweight, something like that, maybe a squirt gun company. 
it's like MMA is a washcloth and they're just wringing every set out of it that they possibly can. UFC light heavyweight division, the trash truck division. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us at patreon.com slash co-main event. We'll be over there all week for the live chat, the movie club, and the power hour. Find out what happens to my parlay. I know I'm interested to find out what happens with it. Uh, As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I mean, okay, it's it's a trash truck, but it's like a badass trash truck, right? Maybe Heavyweight could be sponsored by those hats that you can get that you put a beer in and they have those straws you drink the beer out of the hats. Maybe Heavyweight could be sponsored by those hats. We're going to need to figure out what those hats are called because I don't know if you can really be like Heavyweight, the official division of those hats that you can put a beer in and then there's a straw coming out out of the hat and then you can drink it. I mean, Light Heavyweight is now sponsored by a company that specializes in heavy-duty refuse and recycling trucks, so don't... Don't make it sound like we need to make it sound cool. Right? Heavyweight, now sponsored by those beer drinking hats. See? Heavy duty. Heavy duty refuses. Not, this is not for the light work. You know? 